Welcome to this episode of To Differ is Divine, a podcast about spiritual permeability from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina, hosted by Bishop Sam Rodman, Bishop of the Diocese, and Rabbi Raquel Jurovics, the diocesan rabbi-in-residence and former leader of Yavna, a Jewish renewal community located in Raleigh. My name is Summerlee Walter, the producer for this podcast, and I'll be introducing each episode. To Differ is Divine is an invitation to devotional friendship between souls on different paths, including those who do not follow a particular religion. Our host will explore the writings and practices of their respective faith traditions as a conversation between different expressions of God. This exploration of spiritual permeability is a way to enrich one's own practice while contributing to a world without religious prejudice or fear. In this episode, Rabbi Raquel and Bishop Sam share their formative experiences of interreligious dialogue, from elementary school through college to their current thinking about conversations among followers of different faiths. Instead of seeking some impossible standard of neutrality when approaching each other's scriptures, they discuss the ways in which rich, respectful dialogue requires us to acknowledge that we each view our own scriptures as normative while still approaching other religious teachings with curiosity and appreciation. They also share some of the ways in which learning about other religious practices encourages them to examine some of their own. Like all episodes of To Differ is Divine, this episode includes detailed notes to provide additional context for the religious practices and concepts our hosts discuss. We hope you'll take the time to read them and learn a little bit more about an unfamiliar faith tradition, or maybe even your own. With that, I invite you to enjoy Dialogues of Devotion, Episode 4 of To Differ is Divine, from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. Welcome back to another session of To Differ is Divine. I'm Rabbi Raquel Jurovics, and I'm here with Bishop Sam Rodman, and we've gotten ourselves together today to talk a bit about what do we mean when we refer to dialogue of devotion? How in the world did we get to a place in our own lives of comfort, not only just in the presence of other faith practices and in conversations with people who take a faith quite different than ours, seriously center their lives around it? How do we prepare ourselves to be in conversations that are free of anxiety and competition and filled with curiosity. And for me, I, I have to say, when I think back, even fairly early, I probably was in grammar school when one of my schoolmates felt it necessary to point out to me that I had killed his God. And I was not aware of that having happened and needed to figure out what in the world he was talking about. And I think that I was born a pedant. So I that's probably, I know, sixth grade-ish. Got a copy of the New Testament flipping through it. I'm finding verses that do seem to contradict that way of, of understanding the relationship of Jews and Christians. But that was okay. It just brought to mind a sense that sometimes religious difference implies animosity. And it's not that I was unaware of the beyond grotesque disaster of the Shoah, but I was also a, an elementary school kid. And I didn't expect to hear that from anybody. I didn't expect to hear a personal accusation, and by the way, you're going to hell, which is not a comfortable message. And one of the things I learned in trying to figure out, well, 
what am I going to do with this? Am I, am I going to play chapter and verse and argue with this person? Was to begin to think about the role of, of the faiths that we may be living with in how we interact with other people in our community, the people we encounter. And I was just thinking about kids I was going to school with at that point. And what struck me was the fairly obvious insight that we're all born into our respective families somewhat by chance. I mean, there's there's rather quite a biological lottery at play, and where we show up determines a great deal about what our initial formation around all kinds of topics might be. So it did come to the front of my mind fairly early that I could have been born into a Christian family, and I could have learned stuff that made me think ill of Jews. So I have to hold that in my mind, as well as thinking, well, what do I need to know so that I have something to say? Because, and this will sound flip, and I don't really mean it that way. I think that if it were a point of pride in my tradition to have committed deicide, I would have heard about it. I think that there would have been some element of the tradition that I was being raised in, which I loved, that would have told me that this is something that was part of our mission in the world. And I never heard that. Uh, In fact, I was raised in a household that was uh, pretty comfortable with friendships across religious lines and with a father who loved to fit himself to the context that he was in, not to make fun of it, but because it was so much fun to try out a new accent. So that I I don't know how many of you all remember the Woody Allen movie, Zelig. Zelig was a guy who just showed up in all of the famous photographs in history. He was always in the right place. And you know, if you put him in a, in a lineup with some Cherokee from Oklahoma, my dad grew up in Oklahoma, he'd sound like the people sitting around him. And I found something wonderful in that. I found that that appreciation of human diversity was incredibly valuable. So I began trying it out a little bit on my own. And I thought, well, I need to be attentive to the concerns of my Christian friends. And I'm going to hand off to Bishop Sam after this. But somewhere I was in high school, maybe I was a sophomore, and the Pope died. A Pope died. And I went off to school that morning, and I bumped into one of my friends who was very prominently always wore a cross, but it wasn't a crucifix, but I didn't yet know the difference. And I said, oh, sorry about the Pope. And she said, I'm not too upset. I'm a Presbyterian. (laughs) I clearly do not know enough about this stuff. I, I love that story, Rabbi Raquel. And my journey really begins where yours just took us, my high school days. And it was actually when I went in my junior year away to a boarding school that was Episcopally affiliated. It was an Episcopal school. And back in those days, and I won't say exactly when, but let's just say it was in the 70s, we still had required chapel every day. But what was interesting is that every student participated in the chapel as part of the life of the community, but not as an indoctrination into the faith. And that was a really interesting point of entry for me for conversation and dialogue about people from different faith traditions and how they interact and intersect. Because there were at this school, and I'll name the school, it's called South Kent School, it's still up and running in the northwest corner of Connecticut. And there were Jewish students, as well as Episcopal students, as well as Catholic students, as well as Muslim students, eventually, 
although not when I was there. And chapel, I should add, is no longer required. But the understanding in those days when it was required was, as I said, not with the intention of in any way, shape, or form expecting anyone to conform to the tenets of faith, but to introduce and to invite others into a faith tradition and an experience, respecting their integrity. And students that chose to come there and their families knew that that was part of the fabric of the community of the school. And what it did for me as a 16-year-old, or however I was in my junior year, was invite me to go deeper in conversation with my classmates who were Jewish about what they believed and about where there was difference and different frame of reference, but also where there was great commonality and connection, and to begin to appreciate all of that as part of our journey and as part of what it meant to be a person of faith. And for me, the unifying factor was that we were both people of faith in that conversation. And that set, for me, a pretty healthy tone. That's not where the story ends, and I'll just go a little bit further. When I arrived at college up in a small liberal arts school in Maine called Bates College, I affiliated with a Christian fellowship group on campus as a way of meeting people whose faith life was important to them and who were in various branches of the Christian tradition. But early on in meeting with that group, they invited another group to come speak to us. And the group was a group called Jews for Jesus. And quite frankly, I was mortified by what I heard from the presenters. And it did cause me to step back from my association with that group, which turned out had more of an evangelical perspective and agenda than I at first realized. But I was very uncomfortable with the messaging and the language and the lack of respect for another faith tradition and honoring the integrity of other faiths as part of our journey. While I was at college, one of the books that I read as part of a sociology course, but became and still is one of the 10 best books that I ever read, was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And you may recall, if you've read that book, that part of Malcolm X's journey into Islam and the journey he takes to Mecca and the mystical revelation he has about the magnanimity of God and the all-embracing love of God propels him in a direction that really underscores the universality of the journey of faith. And it's not about the particular, while he continued to be an avowed Muslim, towards the end of the book, there's a real openness to the integrity of the faith journey of others. And it's hard to know where that journey would have taken him had his life not been ended too soon by an assassin's bullet. Later in studying the life and some of the writings of Gandhi, a similar world-renowned religious leader who spoke from a particular tradition, but who not only honored and embraced other traditions, but championed other traditions and their integrity and their autonomy as authentic expressions of faith. So for me, the roots of my journey began in a kind of, I think, healthy and wholesome environment 
I got exposed to what I would call some expression of hatred or at least really unhealthy, repressive understanding of the relationship between faiths. And then my journey in education took me to a much deeper and more profound understanding of the vitality and the richness of these kinds of conversations. I think you point to something deeply significant for any of us who engage in conversations with friends and colleagues whose spiritual practice differs from our own. And that is, we at some point are exposed to the tension between constriction and expansiveness in religious life. And all of our traditions, I think there's probably hardly one where there's not some bit of preference for those who are part of the in-group relative to everybody else. And there's also a sense of expansive understanding that however one imagines divinity, that we can't ourselves set limits to how that divinity communicates with us. I think that tension within communities and within individuals between expansiveness and constriction relative to things that may be ritually important or important within the sense of of identity of the tradition itself. The preference certainly among people in, in the community that I grew up in, the Jewish community in Southern California that I grew up in, the idea of marrying out carried a pretty considerable weight of disapproval. And it's not that there aren't questions to be asked around intermarriage. And at the same time, I recall having lunch with uh, yet another Presbyterian of my acquaintance, a friend who decades later was a Presbyterian minister. And I'd come from my synagogue office, and there was something going on between two families, and they were not happy because their children weren't marrying who they thought they should marry. And I went on and on about intermarriage. And he said, what does that even mean? I, I don't know. And it was such a a weighty topic that to me, how could you not know that intermarriage means marrying somebody not of your faith? What did I know? I mean, I'm assuming that Methodists and Presbyterians and and Lutherans and Episcopalians intermarry, but they may not even call it that. I don't know. I just know that within my community, notions of the literal survival being dependent on creating more Jewish homes and more Jewish families was something that had, had to be considered. What I didn't have to consider were things that I had friends who were quite worried about. A young man I was friends with towards the end of high school, and I have to assume it was that because we drove someplace in his car, so we had to be at least 16, and he took me to church one Wednesday evening. So I learned that church met on Wednesday evening. And I didn't realize until afterwards that probably he had had a word or two with his minister about who he was bringing. Because it was pretty much a um, an outreach to the otherwise damned Jewish person who might be here in church with us tonight. It was really quite direct. And, you know, God will only save, I think in that group, the number was 144,000 people. And so on the way home, I could say, so help me understand this. So this was a long time ago. And maybe at that time, there were three or four billion people on the planet, five billion people. So out of all of those souls that God created, God is only going to save 144,000. Why would you worship that God? And that was not a fair question because he didn't have 
it's, it's like it would have been hard for me at that time to explain to to somebody why it was my parents were more than mildly obsessed about who I dated. The question of the legitimacy of the religious teaching he was receiving was not something that had really been presented to him before. And the questioning of an entire theological viewpoint that there is such a thing as as a limit to divine grace, as a limit to salvation. So just finding in social interactions, in having a girlfriend in my freshman year in college who broke off her engagement because she became frightened that she loved her fiance more than she loved Jesus. And to sit with her and and do my best to hear the anguish that she was feeling and try to process how does that form of faith work? How does one resolve that kind of attention? which at least from my viewpoint, and I hope their marriage was a happy one, she did resolve and eventually married her fiance. But the gradual opening up to the varieties of choices that religion places in front of us, the determinations we make about who we associate with, and in some instances, where do we land on questions of social justice and the notion that religion and politics are completely separable, I think is uh, not tenable. We bring our entire selves into all of the decisions we make. And so some of the best conversations I had as a young adult around faith were with people with whom I was engaged in in various social justice enterprises. Uh, and ultimately, as an adult, and in a when we finally were settled in our lives here in North Carolina in the early 80s, as I began serving on my congregation's speakers bureau. And mind you, at that time, I had not been to seminary. I was not representing as anything other than a reasonably knowledgeable Jewish person. To begin to learn, how do I talk about the essence of my faith as I understand it, in light of what I'm coming to learn about the expectations and the deep, deeply held emotional needs of people whose faith is quite different from mine, that I needed to find ways, for example, of leading with Judaism not being based on Jesus's teachings. Because I could finish a half an hour and have gone through perhaps the entire liturgical calendar, which does not include Christmas. And the first question would would be one of two. How do you all celebrate Christmas? Or how do you face death without Jesus? And that opening up to the profundity of difference and the importance of finding a vocabulary for engaging around that different way of understanding our relationships to God and to each other, and what it was we were looking to our religions to provide for us was a part of a kind of a call to keep doing this work more and more over time. Mm. In my journey, and it's interesting, we're both talking about early roots in our lives that brought us into a sensibility and an understanding and a conversation. And that um, in some of those instances, the conversation was deep and rich and, and enriched our own understanding of our faith. And in others, there was really some alarms going off in terms of the conversation and what was being communicated and what was being presumed and assumed about other people's perspective and faith understanding. And for me, one of the places that my deep appreciation for Judaism grew was during my time in seminary. And that was in part because I was fascinated with the Hebrew scriptures 
And I took a semester of Hebrew. I was not a Hebrew scholar, but I loved the language and I loved the invitation. And speaking of difference, there were so many things that for me were striking that the original texts, as I was taught, did not include vowels, and uh, those were added later. And reading, in fact, is not left to right, it's right to left. And it couldn't have been more different and more engaging and more inviting. And I did this because I wanted to understand the Hebrew scriptures in their own context, not through the lens of Christianity. That's a lifelong journey, and I have a long way to go, but I love that I was studying in an environment where that was affirmed and where that was not only affirmed, but because that was the approach I had taken, I was invited to go the summer after my second year in seminary to go to a conference of Jewish and Christian scholars in Baltimore for a week that was all about this dialogue and this deep appreciation and respect and understanding for one another's faith tradition, interpretation of scripture, the context of our respective communities. And for me, there was an invitation in this context that took me to a much deeper place in my understanding of who God is and, ironically, of who Jesus is for me, but not projecting that onto others. And that, for me, became a key part of how I would determine which conversations were healthy and life-giving and safe, and which were not. And any idea of conversion, for me, was antithetical to the invitation of dialogue and of true appreciation, not only for another's faith, but if you were so insecure in your faith that you had to convert others, then what did that say about your own understanding and belief? There's a, a very rich uh, area of exploration around the whole question of how can we come to one another's uh, scripture, these, in a sense, embodied records of revelation, and study them together through some sort of a neutral lens. And for a very long time, I also saw that as as deeply important effort to be making. How could I read Christian scripture in such a way that I would appreciate it for its own self. And then it began to to impress itself on me that what we're asking each other to do, and and this perception is something that a a newer clergy friend of mine shared from one of his colleagues, is this sense that we are perhaps trying to do something unnatural in that we're being asked to suppress our own authentic responses to what's put in front of us that may not be a wholly congenial in theological terms in order to have a neutral conversation. And faith is not neutral. Each of our traditions carry particularistic resonances. And I've been thinking over the past many months of how often I participated in interfaith scripture studies and, and sometimes, happily, with Jews, Christians, and Muslims, uh, rarely with folks from other traditions than those three, beginning to see that there isn't any way in which we don't look at our own text as normative. So that my sense of what's neutral in reading Torah, I have no idea what that would be for you, Bishop mm-hmm. Sam. I can't even begin to imagine what does it mean 
to set aside uh, all of the years of scriptural study and liturgical practice and contemplation around the meaning of Christian teaching and read what for Christians is called an Old Testament, mm-hmm. and which doesn't exactly represent the text that Jews are referring to when we say Torah, because right. we're looking at, at the Tanakh, at the Torah and, and prophets and writings, as codified somewhat later into the Middle Ages. So we're not even talking about a text that was accessible to the early Christians when we talk about, as Jews, what our revelation is. And beginning to get a sense of maybe we're asking one another to do something that's unrealistic. And that can be that the the result we were hoping for, which is one of reading with appreciation, can happen even through the lens of our respective faiths. So while I'm sure that my friend who with whom I'm now studying the book of Luke probably thinks that occasionally my reactions border on the sacrilegious. Still, giving myself permission to read the text just as I would read its its holy text. You put it in front of me. I suspect if you gave me the Bhagavad Gita, I would find something uh, that reminded me of something I'd seen in Torah. And I do the same thing. And I'm saying, oh, well, that episode makes me think about when Moses and God were arguing after the unfortunate incident of the golden calf. There are resonances and how much richer it is. It's wonderful For me, Bishop Sam, when I hear you preach and you take text that I hold dear in a particularistic context, and I hear you preach on it and draw a lesson from it that is supportive of, amenable to, and completely intertwined with with your Christian faith. There's Mm -hmm. no loss to that. But I do wonder if what you and I were both formed to try to do for quite a long time to try to find a place of neutrality, maybe part of the work that we need to be undertaking now is not to do that, to work on, as you said, creating safe spaces in which you're not obligated to try to pretend a neutrality that perhaps our souls aren't meant to carry. I love that. For me, it calls to mind two points of reference from when I was serving in a church in a town just south of Boston in Milton, Massachusetts. And early on there, I was given a gift by one of my parishioners not long after I arrived. And it was a book called The Search for God at Harvard, written by an Orthodox Jew, Ari Goldman, who worked for the New York Times as a journalist. In his work as a journalist, where he covered the religious life of the culture and society around him, uh, he wanted to go deeper in his understanding of other faiths and took a sabbatical from his time as a journalist for the newspaper and went to Harvard and studied not only Judaism, but Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism. And the the book is just a wonderful revelation of exactly what you're describing, because he never ever stepped outside of his deep devotion to his Orthodox Judaism. And it was from that place that he explored and expanded and shared his understanding. And one of the quotes in that book that I love to this day is, and I apologize for the gender bias in the language, but the quote is, he who knows one knows none. Mm. And that is at the heart, the invitation of that book, that if you really want to understand your own faith, 
you have to be engaged in dialogue and conversation in appreciation and understanding of other faiths. And that is when the fullness of your faith is revealed. Without that conversation, there is a myopia that is not actually authentically even your own faith. And it's only through that engagement that the layers and the depth and the fullness of your faith can be revealed. And I actually use that book as part of my confirmation preparation for those who were joining the Episcopal Church. <laughs> so, but the other association was, I also was part of the Interfaith Clergy Group in Milton. And that was involved initially Jewish leaders, Christian leaders, and eventually Islam leaders as well, when they began to serve in the area. And again, just incredible ongoing journey of deepening my understanding and appreciation for other people's faith traditions, and also going deeper in an understanding of what this means about Christianity and what this teaches me about Christianity. There's a great deal to be to be said for the collegiality and the open-heartedness in interfaith clergy groups. I've had the privilege of being part of one that started actually while I was still in seminary. They kindly let me join in. So this is going back maybe 23 years or so ago. And uh, there was quite a diversity of women clergy uh, in terms of the traditions that they they served in. And because, again, of the, the sense of safety in that space, we were able to put forward concerns that might spring out of a particularistic reality within our community or our tradition, and then play with it together from so many other perspectives, and always feel that we were supporting one another on a faith journey that was, in some ways, in its forms, shaped by the particularities, but in its essence, nurtured by our sense that to riff a bit off of the the quote that you just cited, that by knowing, knowing the one required us to be open to all the others. There's a, a lovely Hasidic teaching that, you know, if you worry about, well, I, I don't know how to live into the whole array of, of commandments. I feel spiritually inadequate. Well, pull on any, any divine thread you can. Pick anything and draw on it, and you touch any of it, and you have all of it. And yet, of course, you you don't. You have what you have, but because it's all interconnected. And I think that over time, if you have the privilege to participate in safe conversations among people of, of varying faiths around just the very process of being a person in the world, you can find that a thread pulled from one direction and a thread pulled from another direction are still drawing down something that we all recognize as being greater than any of the individual pathways, uh, that we're not looking to, to weave something that is symbiotic, but rather to recognize that holiness is manifested to all of us based on our needs and the way our communities understand themselves in the world. And, and I, I think, too, something that what you were talking about earlier points to is that there are different levels on which these conversations happen. And sometimes these are institutional levels. And there's a great deal of positive outcome from convocations among leaders of differing traditions, assuming that 
all of those who show up can find some small amount of flexibility uh, in, in, the, in their conversation if they have any openness of heart, then the institutions can perhaps find ways of being more flexible in their relationships to each other. I think that the kind of work that you and I have experienced over our lifetimes is more street-level devotion. It's more person-to-person. It's more about the conversations that come up, not in a formal context necessarily, but how do you find uh, a way of expanding your own spiritual language to hear from somebody else what it is that breaks their heart open when they think about their relationship to God. Mm. It sometimes starts with something that's that feels jarring, surprising, and unwelcome. I, a Pakistani Muslim woman I was friends with while she was living in the area some years ago, we were having a, a meeting of a yet another interfaith task force around some issue. And someone said, oh, it's, no, I, I don't remember what her name was. Let's say it was Shireen. It's Shireen's birthday. And we all wished her happy birthday. She said, no, no, I don't celebrate birthdays. I'm just that much closer to dying and meeting my Lord. And for those of us who were hoping for cupcakes, that seemed a little bit dark. But we had a really wonderful conversation around that sense of this life as an anteroom to eternal life and to her sense of her life as being lived fully in the service of of her faith. And clearly, because she was there with us, coming from so many other faith paths, she wasn't cut off from us in that service. But her sense of how to frame the passage of time in her own life was different than what any of the rest of us had heard before. Attending the funeral of one of my teenage daughters, I mean, my daughter is by no means a teenager anymore. When she was, she had a very close friend down the street who died of cystic fibrosis, Mm. a Hindu family. We attended the funeral and had to try to get our hearts and minds around her parents being at ease with their hope that she would soon be in her next incarnation and would not suffer. Mm. She would have a better body. Mm. And this is, I have lots to say about Judaism and reincarnation for another time, but that was that felt stark because they seemed to be not grieving. And yet I know their hearts were broken. So there's so many doors to be opened Mm. or windows or lattices. I don't know. It's that, you know, uh, in Song of Songs, you know, knocking on the shutter and, you know, who is your beloved and who's calling you and to what end? Mm. That's lovely. And, And the poignancy of our mortality and the way that our faith helps us to navigate that in different ways and in different expressions, there's dissonance there. And then there's also some ways in which there's a resonating promise or hope. And that plays out not only in our individual journeys and our family lives and history, but in the community too. And I do want to hear more about Judaism and reincarnation but I, I also want to tell a story about Judaism and resurrection, and it pertains to that clergy group in Milton. The rabbi, uh, for a good portion of the time I was there, Rabbi Fred Benjamin, was leading his congregation from an old and outdated building that had become way too expensive to maintain, and parenthetically, not an unusual circumstance for some of our churches as well to face. And in that community, managing a transition to get out from under that property, then to sell the property, and then to realize enough proceeds to build a new temple in the community. And navigating that was complicated enough for his own congregation, 
but also in conversation with the people of the town because the sale of the property in a small town in New England becomes a public process and then the purchasing of new property and building the new temple. So we got to journey together and support Rabbi Benjamin and his community in that process, including a time at which they shared worship in the congregational church in town. Obviously, different day of the week on Saturday, Friday night and Saturday used the space that was used by the congregational church on Sunday as a temporary home while their new home was being built. But when there was some resistance to selling the old property, which is where most of the resistance showed up in the town for whatever reason, he was trying to describe their journey in a town that, bear in mind, was 87% Christian and also Roman Catholic. And there was not only the opportunity for education and conversation and dialogue, but for some humor. And Rabbi Benjamin at one point said, you may not realize that Jewish people, as Jewish people, we believe in resurrection. We prefer to call it rejuvenation, but we believe in resurrection. And that was a turning point in that conversation with that particular audience in opening a way forward for them to understand that that was really a story for that community of resurrection, of death and resurrection. So I, I just love well, that's, that. That's, that is, that's a very rich topic for for another time because <laughs> yes. it, it weaves itself in and out of Jewish theological understandings. And, and so we definitely should do a session or more on what do we do with uh, the soul's journey? How do we imagine it? And how do we, how do we talk about it? But I think that whole question of what happens around the placement of houses of worship uh, can become quite contentious in communities. I don't know. I just find that anxiety around, and, and I think our, our, our Muslim siblings have suffered this tremendously since 9-11 in this country, this irrational opposition to the very idea of Muslims worshiping together in a dedicated space in the midst of any American community in which they happen to live, or Sikhs who are sadly often mistaken for Muslims. And what is it like to have to explain no, I'm I'm something else. I'm not that. You just think that because of my skin color or I dress differently. The burdens we place on one another by not accustoming ourselves to being in dialogic relationship with people of other faiths, the cost is quite high. The pain that can be created is, is significant. But for every conversation that goes south, there are others that are elevating and open up opportunities for reimagining one's one's own faith journey. At the very least, whenever I, I have the opportunity to be present for worship, there's a mosque in our area, uh, an African-American mosque, as Salam. I have had the pleasure of being friends with their imam for a couple of decades now, and I really appreciate him as a spiritual teacher. And I'm always moved by the deep commitment to personal development, this commitment to refining one's soul and refining one's capacity to be in the world in a way that is beneficial to everyone encountered. The stamina to get up in the middle of the night to pray, I mean, to get in five prayer times a day is no mean feat. And I know that my tradition has provision for prayers in the middle of the night. It's not that we can't do that. It's that the commitment that is required to show up five times a day, as opposed to the three times a day that would suit the rubrics of prayer. For me, I'm thinking that's a different kind of devotion. 
Mm-hmm. They're being asked to do something differently. And I would feel if any day that I managed to meet all of you know my prayer commitments, I would feel like that was a really good day. And to feel that I had yet to get up two more times when I'm not in my best after dark, I, I find that awe-inspiring. Uh, and it makes me think about, well, uh, why don't I sometimes get up and when it what's called tikkun hatzot halaylai, a commitment to do a spiritual rep- repair, a, an array of prayers for the benefit of all of creation in the middle of the night? Why don't I do that? It's not showing me something like, oh, I can't do that because I'm not a Muslim. It's like, oh yeah, I have that too. So what keeps me from it? And I have to interrogate my own sense of what is appropriate practice mm. and, and accept that challenge. Mm. And that is such an important part of the journey. And, and I think these conversations often draw us back, as you just did, to that question of, of our own practice, our spiritual practice. And one thing that has been consistent for me in our dialogue and in other dialogues of devotion is that I always come away with the invitation to a greater degree of devotion mm-hmm. from the conversation. And sometimes that's a challenge that I'm ready to embrace. And sometimes it's a challenge that I want to run from. And to pay attention to that is really a part of the invitation that we're inviting all of our listeners to engage around, which is that this journey that we're on and this dialogue of devotion is at its heart an invitation from the Holy One to each of us. Join us next week as our hosts begin an in-depth discussion of the Psalms.